As doctors of what I call proper healthcare, and certainly as chiropractors, our mission is big and bold. Our nation and the world requires leadership when confronting the pandemic of metabolic derangement, which leads to degenerative disease and poor health. Masses of people around the globe will never know what it feels like to have boundless energy, unlimited potential, and true health independence into their senior years. Join me in my quest to bring together the best practices to make you a leader in your community. My question to the entire profession is, if not now, when? If not us, who? Good, but uh, welcome everybody, Dr. Nate Bloomy and Dr. Stephen Janopoulos here with you today again on one of our Friday afternoon interviews. Welcome, Dr. G. Oh, it's great to be here. This is like, like a regular thing now. We're, 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 we're a regular team. Yeah, and it's finally summer here in Indiana. We've had like uh, three mornings of rain and sunny, beautiful afternoon evenings. So uh, how are you guys doing in New York? Hot and humid for a change, which, which is kind of nice. I never thought I'd say that, but it's been a cold, a cold May. Gotcha. Well, it looks like we're doing everything properly this time. I'm broadcasting it on the right channel, the right page. Didn't have to use YouTube. So we might actually get some good live questions that we could actually answer today. So, uh, you know, we've got 15, 30 minutes in here. Who knows? But as you guys ask questions, we're going to answer as best we can. Uh, and if we don't know the answer, I guarantee we'll come back with the answer for you next time. So as you're watching this, ask your questions down below. I'm going to figure out how I can find a way to see them down here. But, um, you know, What's, uh, what would you say that has changed since we did our first one like four or five weeks ago? We talked about the current state of health and COVID and all these things. Um, from your perspective, Dr. G, what's changed what's, uh, as far as our understanding and, and where are we now compared to where we were? Well, uh, I, I, I'm, I like to say the, uh, I like the saying, uh, there's nothing new on, under the sun, uh, but we, we're definitely learning new things. But, uh, you know, we're really just seeing as time goes on that this, uh, what will determine our response to any virus, not just this one, is is our metabolic health. I mean that, that that's just it's so evident, it's so glaring right right now that it's it's really hard to even have a conversation without talking about our health. And it's kind of like if if your health was declining in such slow motion in the past uh, that that you barely noticed it decline or that you didn't really care because you thought you had so much time ahead of you, uh, this current state of affairs has just shown how quickly that that can be sped up. So uh, the, the, this idea of uh, going through life uh, faster than you should uh, or aging faster than than you should. I think we, we talked about that a couple of times over the last few weeks where we said that if you're if it's kind of like playing a YouTube video at one point five. Right. If that's how fast you're aging, well, that can even that can be sped up to a more critical rate when dealing with this virus yesterday's virus, tomorrow's virus, any virus, or any uh, real challenge that, that you have to your health in your life. Yeah. We've talked again, and this was a concept I used to talk about a lot in the office about the difference between your chronological age and your biological age, right? The concept of that was, you know, chronologically, I'm 43 years old, but if I've treated my body like crap for the last two decades, bio, uh, biologically, I'm, my body might be functioning at like a 60-year-old or even older, and that's what we want to avoid. So, Dr. G shared in his past some of his biggest life hacks on how do we slow down that biological aging? How do we keep, at worst, our biological and our chronological age the same? 
and at best, how do we slow down so at 43, my body's functioning better than it was maybe at 35 or even 30? I've often said, you know, my 20s through chiropractic school, lots of stress. Um, you know, I was not at my healthiest. It wasn't until I got to my 30s that I got healthier. And my goal has been to continue to increase that by inputting other things in and around my life that help improve overall health and function. And that's what it's all about. So as we're thinking about these things, and you guys have questions to ask, that's what we want you thinking about. Not, not how do I avoid this stuff, but how do I slow down that biological clock of aging? So that brings us to the first question we had already this morning. I had a gal in, in her 60s, and um, you know, she said, uh, you know, we were talking about this, this live, she saw me setting up for it, and she said, uh, well, what's the topic? And I said, you give me the topic. She said, how the hell did I get so old? Right? I used to be able to, to, to run a 5K or, or walk five or six miles, and she said, now walking half a mile is hard. And it's not like she stopped, took a few years off. It's just all of a sudden, it seemed to hit her. What is that? How does that happen so quickly? I mean, we've had more people in the office this week that, that just seemed like, that they've said, I feel like I got old overnight. Where does that come from? You know, it's funny. Uh, there, there, there's a new uh, 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 program out there, some kind of an app related to, to COVID-19 where, where you can find out your, your, your COVID age, right? So you can plug in some in information. And if you're 56 years old, but you're really healthy, you can actually be 40 when it comes to COVID. And then your risk factors are, are based on that, right? And it could work the other way. If you're 43 years old and you have a poor lifestyle and you plug those lifestyle issues or those medical issues into the COVID calculator, it could say, yeah, according to COVID, you're actually in the uh, 59 or 60 year old age group. And therefore, uh, that puts you at a higher risk. So this will help people make decisions about what's best for them in getting out into the real world. We know the world is opening up, and I don't think there's any stopping that. The wave is occurring, uh, but people are going to have to make individual choices. So to answer your, your question, you know, you said before you're, you're, you're 43 years old. And what what will the what's interesting about the decade of the 40 so you're 43 I'm 49 what's interesting about this decade is that you can either be very young and stay young or you can get old really fast uh whereas that didn't happen in your 20s that didn't happen in your 30s but it's happening in your 40s maybe your 50s and you know we are we are meant to be in motion right so uh a body in in physics we learned in high school that a body in motion tends to stay in motion well, that holds true for our bodies. So as you know, when you're 20 years old, if you're relatively inactive for six months, you could probably go out the next day and play a full court game of basketball and maybe be a little bit sore the next day. Uh, you could do that when you're 35 years old, but then maybe you'll, you'll need a couple of days to, to recover. You do that when you're 45 years old, you're probably going to hurt yourself. You might have an orthopedic injury and then so on and so forth. So what causes that, I would say uh, doing things that make you healthy with more frequency becomes more important as we get older. So the exercise you do needs to be more regimented as you get older. Uh, the time you take off from exercise needs to happen less frequently as you get older. Um, I, I would say when you're young, exercise intensity is more important, but as you get older, exercise consistency, not necessarily intensity, becomes a more important factor. Matter of fact, if you're in your 40s or 50s and you're trying to do the things you did when you were in your early 20s, 
that can actually make things worse for you. Uh, we tend to think exercise is something that uh, the more the better, uh, but that may not be the case. Now, the more consistent, the better, I agree. But the more intense, I'm not so sure about that. And we can further discuss that if people have questions. But even when it comes to food, same thing. Uh, we have hormonal systems in our body that deal with what food we eat. And those hormonal systems do get tired and fatigued, and they're not as efficient as they once were. When you were 19 years old in college, you could eat a bucket of, I don't know, buffalo wings and a, and, and a few beers and, and, and not suffer any of the effects of insulin resistance or, or uh, the effects of weight gain, whereas now you do that and you are going to sleep for a few hours and uh, you do that a few times and you'll wind, wind up gaining weight and holding water. So... Uh, I would say that uh, consistency of doing the right things becomes more important as you get older. And if you are less consistent, you'll find that you'll age faster. Yeah. And I think that's a big concept that I, I do want to explore that a little bit more with you in a moment. Um, you know, you and I've talked about, we did a Tough mutter together a few years ago and, and kind of the running joke was you were, you were pacing yourself as to not get your heart rate above 140 because because of several reasons, but uh, I think that's an interesting concept. You know, the intensity isn't as important as we age, the frequency and consistency is. Uh, and what about that heart rate that you were talking about? How does that play into what our body, why it's healthier for us to, to, to stay a lower heart rate as we get older? Great question. So uh, one of the things I noticed a few years back, first of all, I've always hated running. I was never a, a runner, but I always participated in a turkey trot uh, 5K in my town. And every time I ran the turkey trot, it was always this need I had to kind of get as close to my high school pace as, as possible, which made the whole experience very not enjoyable, right? So I just didn't enjoy the way I felt while I was running. And I would get a decent time for me. Uh, you know, uh, people would laugh at that time, but let's just say somewhere in the, in the lower to mid 20s uh, for, for a 5K. And I hated it the whole time. And then I started to learn about the heart rate. And I used a simple calculation, 180 minus your age, uh, and kept my heart rate within five beats of that. And it turns out that that, let's say, 24-minute 5K became a 42-minute uh, a 5K. I almost felt like I was walking. It actually felt like I wasn't exercising, and I hated it. But the person who was coaching me at the time said, you know what, don't uh, don't, don't, uh, deviate from that. Stick to that pace, go run, running on a regular basis. And what happened over the next four or five months is that my time at that heart rate went from 42 minutes to 40 minutes to 38 minutes and so on and so forth until I got down to my mid twenties at the same heart rate. So if my heart rate was 165 or 170 beats a minute, before and I didn't enjoy myself, now I was getting that enjoyable feeling during my run and accomplishing the same time. I became so much more efficient. And the reason for that is that calculation, 180 minus your age, is kind of a cutoff for average people. If you're an athlete, you'd probably have to do some special testing to determine your particular heart rate. But for regular people like us, 180 minus your age is the kind of the, the transition point where you go from using oxygen to not using oxygen. When, um, when your ability to deliver oxygen from your lungs uh, is, is exceeded by your heart rate, 
Well, then you go into burning fuel without oxygen. We call that anaerobic. Well, when you're anaerobic, you're dependent on sugar. And sugar is great, but it, it also produces a lot of uh, oxidation, a lot of inflammation. Uh, and that's something that we wanted, I wanted to avoid. So I stayed in the aerobic zone, burning oxygen. And when you burn oxygen, you're much more likely to utilize fat for fuel instead of sugar. So I didn't have to go through the process of making stress hormones to make more sugar. I just used my own body fat. So I got lean. Uh, I mean, I kept my muscle and I lost fat, which, which was awesome. But I also felt good. I just felt great while I was running, which I never experienced in my life until I was over 40 years old. So that's the long answer to your <laughs> short question. Um, I hope that that came across making sense. Yeah, that, the, the perfect answer, and that, that does make total sense. And that's that's the kind of conceptual things that people have trouble wrapping their hands around. Because you know, uh, I've always heard it said, if you want to, you know, if you want to change your body type, start running, right? And so that you know, then you know, and I remember my my first half marathon was twelve years ago, and you know, I thought it would be my only one, and here I am, seventeen half marathons later, and I think three or four tough mutters, and and suddenly you know, I realized that, that that's a part of my health regime, you know, and people always ask me, what are you training for next? My answer is always life, right? I'm training for life because when things like viruses come around, I want to, I want to have made my body an inhospitable host as much as possible so that I don't have to worry about it. Right. And, and while I still take precautions, I'm not worried that I'm going to, to die from this. It's just, I've done so many things right. And so that's what we want to encourage you guys out there is to, to ask those questions. You've got to ask them right now. I'm watching live. We don't have any questions, but I see some watchers. We want to have you guys armed and ready anytime this stuff comes up because you know we take a look that people have been you know the gyms are just starting to open up here in indiana starting monday uh people have been without uh their normal gym routine and this has been an opportunity for people to to, to you know to feast or famine right these are they're, they're doing exercise at home they're learning hey i can do this on my own i've implemented some new stuff where they've, they've just kind of taken a taken a break and both of those with them carry carry risk of, of injury right oh i've been overdoing it at home on things without proper training or i've been doing nothing and become sedentary we've seen that a lot in our office and as i said we've had more people in this week that have said oh my gosh what has happened and it really to me in my mind it's because we're coming up upon that transition Things are starting to really change. Indiana, much more so than New York, but it's that time when we've got to, to start understanding this. So, Dr. G, you know, I've um, you know, known you for years because, uh, you know, both chiropractors. We'll put that in chiropractic terms, right? When we take a look at chiropractic philosophy and the, and the science of the adjustment, how does that play into this aging concept as well? And I know I've got a couple of things that I share in the office, but I'd be interested to hear what kind of words you use when you're trying to explain to somebody how an adjustment or how the chiropractic lifestyle can impact their aging. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things we know about chiropractic care is that it, it, it removes interference with how well your nervous system is functioning. And your nervous system let's just say your brain and spinal cord is probably the most active part of your body, meaning uh, that's the part of your body that uses the most energy. So, uh, and, and the, the analogy I like to use here is if we would imagine in a, in a sick situation, um, your brain is 2% of your body weight, uh, but it uses 25 to 30% of your oxygen, of, of your fuel. And that's because your brain is always functioning at full tilt. Your nervous system is always in the maximum requirement for energy, whether you're fighting with your spouse, running a marathon, doing a calculus problem, meditating or sleeping. 
So that demand that you have for fuel is always maximum. And therefore, if you're, uh, if there's interference with that communication, well, then your energy use is going to be less. And then you get a chiropractic adjustment and you improve or you allow the body and the nervous system to commu- communicate more efficiently. Now you're going to demand more energy. Well, as we get older, if that energy uh, source is, uh, is ham- hampered by dietary choices you make, uh, our, you know, the influence of, of sugar and, and, and fructose in, in, in our diet, um, the efficiency in which we exercise or the frequency in which we exercise, all of those things are going to play a role. And if you're not able to deliver fuel efficiently, your nervous system is too smart. It's going to actually subluxate you again. It's going to actually go to that lower energy mode because your body is smart. It wants to protect itself. So one of the things we always say in the chiropractic profession is that uh, a subluxation is something that can be an adaptive response to stress. Well, if that's a dietary stress, if it's a hormonal stress, if it's a uh, any stressor that's going to impair your ability to deliver fuel, that's something to be aware of because then your response to chiropractic care won't be as as good as it could be. And one of the ways we can figure out if that's the case, if there's a metabolic subluxation, so to speak, is to do a simple blood test. Uh, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm of the opinion, as you know, Dr. Nate, that every chiropractic patient coming into the office should have a, a, a comprehensive wellness panel uh, done to identify metabolic subluxations that can be easily fixed uh, with, with lifestyle changes that, that we recommend. Yeah. And I think we addressed that uh, in, our, in our video two weeks ago uh, about the types of things that we can do to help decrease our risk of metabolic subluxation, as you say, of that. And uh, the intermittent fasting and becoming uh, a fat-burning machine is really what we talked about two weeks ago. So take a look for that uh, that explanation on this page below. I think that would be a great one for everybody to watch, and one that I know I've already referred to a few people in the office to, to catch the real description, you know, 25, 30 minutes we did just on that concept. Uh, to tee off on... Dr. Nate, I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt you for one second there. One, And, and that was that, that previous uh, recording that we did was, was great because we went into one aspect of fuel, right? We went into uh, fat and sugar and fructose and, and that whole. But now the other aspect is oxygen. And one of the things that we see is just basically our simple red blood cell health. You know, the job of a red blood cell in your body is to deliver oxygen. And how many women in our communities are, have been told, oh, I'm, I'm anemic, all right? You know, uh, and, and they kind of say it very nonchalant. Oh, my, my, my doctor says I'm always anemic. Well, that's not good. The word anemia means inefficient delivery of oxygen. And there has to be a reason for that because oxygen is uh, the fuel that every cell in your body needs. But we just said that any depletion of oxygen is going to manifest as a nervous system problem first. So even a simple, what we call complete blood count, a CBC, something that would probably cost $6 if we were to just do a CBC, can give us a wealth of information about not just women, but men who also have inefficiencies of red blood cell function. Again, not from a disease standpoint, but but just from a, a functional standpoint. Yeah. Powerful, right? I mean, just just that concept of, of a simple test and learning it for anemic. Because how often? Exactly, he's exactly right. We hear it all the time, right? Women over the age of just even thirty years old talking about, yep, 
just got uh, you know notified I was anemic. I'm taking some iron. You know, the other big one's thyroid. I mean, that is almost across the board um, something that women are talking about, and whether the, they are experiencing thyroid issues, they someone in their family probably is. How do those two things relate? Anemia, thyroid. What's the connection there? Yeah, no, no great question because uh, every single cell in your body uh, has a receptor for thyroid hormone. Uh, it, it is, which is why if if you have a list of symptoms and you put it into in, into the Google machine uh, and, and you ask for, um, you know, what, what your diagnosis could be, thyroid always comes at, at the top whenever there's a laundry list of symptoms because every system in the body can be affected by uh, disruptions in thyroid health. But one of the things that gets disrupted with uh, poor thyroid function or poor thyroid hormone physiology, I should say, is uh, your ability to produce red blood cells. Um, anemia is a big part of, of, of thyroid uh, dysfunction. And, you know, when it comes to the word anemia, again, low oxygen state, uh, there are many causes of it. Iron is just one. There's, there's a, a dozen major different types of anemia that, that we should know about. Uh, and iron deficiency is not the only uh, solution or, or, or cause. In some cases, it might even make it worse. But going back to the thyroid story, thyroid hormone, one of the things it does is it creates our demand for energy. It kind of sets the idle for the engine of the cell. And we're talking about every cell in the body. So if that idle is running too low, right? So then that cell is going to sputter along and not really work as efficiently as it should. Or if that idle is set too high, well, you know what it's like when the idle on your engine is running way too high. I don't know about you, but one of my early cars was had a carburetor. And if I set the engine, if I set the idle too high, I would destroy the transmission. So it just needs to be right. The idle of the engine of your cell needs to be right. Thyroid hormone will, will help establish that. That's overly simplistic. Um, and you know, it's not my job. It's not your job to be a, uh, an endocrinologist. That's an endocrinologist job. If there's dysfunction that requires uh, medical attention, we, of course, will make that necessary referral. However, the number one cause of thyroid symptoms in this country is autoimmune disease or, or inflammation caused by your immune system attacking you. And sometimes you and I can just make some changes in somebody's life related to inflammation and immune function alone, and their thyroid markers can normalize and their doctor can be very happy with that and they wouldn't have to take medication at times. So, so there, there is a lot to know there. It does get a little nuanced, but I think your audience is pretty savvy and, and pretty uh, smart and they can kind of hear my explanation and say, yeah, no, I understand that. And I, you know, I, I'd like to know more. I think that that concept, in, in my mind, people come in and they say, I'm anemic. And they think that's this package that they are then, you know, now I'm taking iron when they don't realize that there could be a thyroid relation. It could be, you know, an autoimmune issue. It could be all these things that aren't just that one simple thing that they've been diagnosed with. It's really upstream is the real problem and it just filters down and then they experience the symptom here or it could be the blood marker that they're looking for to test for but the real problem is is as i said upstream and i think that the ability to to have the foresight wherewithal to go you know what what's causing this because it's not normal right the body's not going to just forget how to carry oxygen around it's got that problem for a reason if we can find that reason and you know 
not have the necessity to have to take supplemental iron or any of that stuff. That's the goal, right? The same thing with statins, right? The cholesterol is high for a reason. Cholesterol is not the cause of the problem. Cholesterol is a result. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's really one and the same when we think about what's causing the problem. The problem isn't anemia. The problem isn't high cholesterol. It's something causing those things to happen. And, and in our world, we call that a subluxation, right? Any abnormal interference with nervous system function because the nervous system controls all of the other systems in the body. And what we're seeing now, especially in the last 10, 15, 20 years, is this, this insult to our environment. When I say our environment, our food, our home, our clothing, um, our, our furniture. I mean, we can go on and on on the sources of toxicity and how that's dramatically increased over the recent decades, but it used to be that 50 years ago, 40 years ago, even when you and I gra graduated from school, just you know, 20, 25 years ago, there was a, a much greater impact that we would have on somebody's health when we gave them the proper necessary chiropractic adjustment. And we're just finding in some people that the effect of that is not as robust as we once knew it, it should be. And that's because we have this, this toxic load that, that, that we're experiencing. And again, we can talk about all the different sources of it. There's, you know, I mentioned furniture before. Uh, when you buy furniture, there's flame retardant chemicals on there. When you buy pajamas for your children, there's flame retardant chemicals on there. Uh, when, when, when you buy a package of food, there's, there's uh, pesticides on there that didn't exist 10 years ago. So all of these things by themselves may not have an impact, but now you combine them all together and we are just under a little bit more, a lot more stress. This virus woke us up because how could a virus be non-existent to mild for 99% of the population and be so devastating for that one to 2% of the population? And, and what we're finding is that the, it, it's our ability uh, our pre-existing state of health that determines that. And that should be empowering and scary at the same time. Scary because, I mean, we, we can look at the numbers and say one third of the American public is pre-diabetic and diabetic. That's a hundred million people. Diabetes and pre-diabetes is a number two comorbidity or, or concurrent illness that uh, the people who die from COVID-19 have. So, so even just, wouldn't you want to know if you were just insulin resistant? I mean, you could go to a doctor and they can tell you you're not diabetic or, 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 or that you're pre-diabetic. A lot of people think pre-diabetes is a pre-disease condition. Like, oh, my doctor said I have pre-diabetes. I better be careful before I get diabetes. No, pre-diabetes is a disease in and of itself. And you don't need elevated blood sugar to be pre-diabetic. We now know triglycerides, which is usually discussed in the context of cholesterol, um, even just creeping above 100, the laboratory usually says 150. But we're, we're finding that triglycerides getting above 100 is kind of a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, for, for that metabolic stress that sugar can be putting on our system triglycerides is usually a sugar problem, not a fat problem. You just touched on something I think is really uh, important to bring up that you and I have talked about and we've talked about with a lot of our uh, the practice members that we, that we co-manage. This concept of, and I don't want to go into the weeds too far, but just give our, our, our audience 
concept of the difference between clinical norms and functional norms. That when they go to their doctor and they get their annual blood tests done and they go, they come back all normal, that, that doesn't necessarily mean there aren't some things we can still learn by monitoring those. What are we talking about? Yeah. So basically what we're saying is uh, there's, you know, it, it's not black and white, like disease or healthy. Either I'm sick or I'm healthy. You can be sick, not sick, and healthy. And you could be not sick for decades. I have a brother who's been not sick for decades, but his lifestyle is very unhealthy. So he's not sick, but he's far from healthy. So when you look at blood work, you'll see that the reference range is really based on the concept of not sick, not necessarily healthy. So, so the reference, so let's just say we're checking ABC marker and that marker has a range between five and 10 and you come up nine, and then the doctor says, A-okay, everything is fine for that marker. <clears throat> well, what if we were to say that, you know, those numbers are really not just based on sick and healthy, they're based on uh, on your community, their, their community ratings. Those reference ranges are different all across the country. And it's based on the experience of the laboratory that you went to. And therefore, the numbers are slightly different in every laboratory. So then I ask you, all right, so, and we call that community rating and that's a smart thing. There's good reasons for doing it, but there's also unintended consequences. Yeah, after all, millions of people are taking medication for cholesterol. Millions of people are taking medication for thyroid. It skews the numbers. So then I ask, well, who's more likely to get their blood checked, sick people or healthy people? Well, the answer is sick people get their blood checked a whole lot more. So that reference range is, is based on the sickest in our community, not necessarily the healthiest in our community. So my profession, our profession, went to the same biochemists who come up with these numbers and said, hey, what are the numbers for the healthiest among us? And of course, they gave us a much tighter range on many of these markers. Sometimes that's important. Sometimes it's not really meaningful, but for the most part, it can be very meaningful. It can really give us an idea as to the direction that you're heading without waiting for ill health uh, to, to, to make a decision. Such an important concept. I think that too many, and honestly, myself included, just as short as a decade ago, thought that when those numbers came back normal and somebody said, yep, I just had my checkup, that that meant that they were fine. They weren't at risk of, of, of any, any disease. That, that, that was kind of the clean bill of health. And we're learning very quickly that that's not the case, that there are some very subtle things that as they change should, and, and us knowing it can severely impact how they can, how their health's going to turn out in 10 years by just making some minor changes. If we're going to wait until we get sick to start making those changes, we've missed an opportunity to really take ourselves out of some agony. And, and we've lost the ability to change some of that biological age, right? We've lost the ability to, to kind of, change our path long-term because we're so far downstream in the wrong direction. So, so Dr. Nate, let, let, let's just go back to the, to the question that was asked at the, uh, the, the early part, part of this recording. Uh, and that is, uh, the person said, how do I, you know, why, why am I aging so fast? And, and what we find is that when you're outside of that optimal range on, uh, in, 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 on different markers, those markers, depending on how they're grouped. So we look at groupings, right? So we read blood work. It's the same blood work. It's not like we have our own physiology and medical doctors have their own physiology. It's, it's quite different. 
Their concern is disease. Our concern is health. It's just a little bit different. We look at things differently. We look at pat. We look at patterns. So if somebody has not anemia, but an, an anemic tendency, and they also have a blood sugar story based on their symptoms and their markers that are that is is again outside of the optimal range, and then we start seeing triglycerides go up. We can say, oh, look, look, look at this. Let's take a, you know, let's look look at, you know, some other symptoms they may have. They might have, they might be very tired after eating a meal. They might wake up after a full night's sleep, still feeling uh, fatigued. And we put all of that together to say, this system is going in the wrong direction. If it keeps going in the wrong direction, you're at risk for other things you see in your family, whether it be, you know, heart disease or diabetes or prediabetes or whatever the, the, the story is, all, Alzheimer's. But we can identify those things and jump on them quickly with basic nutritional and lifestyle change. You know, I heard a doctor in a, in a podcast the other day he gave a, a, a great analogy and, and he said, you know, your, your, your body's constantly replacing itself, right? There are some cells that take a long time to replace themselves and there are other cells that happen almost daily. Uh, we know your red blood cells pretty much 120 days and they are like clockwork, they, they, they disappear. Uh, there are, your entire GI tract might replace itself every uh, three weeks. Your immune system. I fast uh, in the wintertime. I like to do extended fasts. And when I do a five to seven day fast, I know 40% of my immune system disappears. It actually just dies. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because when I refeed, I rebuild. And And it's the food, it's my nutrition that's going to rebuild my immune system. All My immune system is made up of what we call immunoglobulins. Those are proteins. So don't you think the, pro, the quality of the protein that I eat is important? Don't you think the quality of all of the cells that are surrounded with a fatty layer, we call a membrane, that the, that the fat that I eat is going to make up that, that layer? Um, so if I were to rebuild my immune system with fast food or junk food or processed food, or if I were to use pastured eggs, wild-caught fish, hormone and antibiotic-free grass-fed beef, there's going to be a big difference in the quality of those cells of that immune system. And that is going to ultimately determine how well I do against COVID-19, the flu, uh, you know, a, a wandering cancer cell that could become a problem later. Uh, so, so we really have to look at nutrients and nutrition a little bit more closely, a whole lot more closely than we have. And it's partly because of this toxic environment that we've created for ourselves. I said to the, the kids all along, right? They, they're like, Hey, can we have, you know, why don't we eat this? What, you know, and I said, look, your body is continually rebuilding itself. You're continually building new cells for your eyes. Do you want your eyes made out of McDonald's French fries? Or do you want them made out of the nutrition finding a cure? I think get it, right. And that, that concept needs to come in. I mean, I remember watching Bear Grylls like 15 years ago and he'd be out in the wilderness and nothing to eat. He's boiling, you know, pine needles for vitamin C, as he said. And just that concept that we, that he certainly wasn't eating for pleasure and he was eating things that may not even taste the best just because he was in a state where he needed to get the most com concentrated energy and nutrients, you know, because of his situation. We put ourselves in such a, uh, 
a state of comfort with food so available and pantries full of, of processed foods that that when those become our go-tos, my God, think about what we're doing that we can build ourselves, you know, with this processed food that we don't trust and know. I mean, I'm sure if I asked Dr. G, he had a similar story, but our, our meal last night was a, you know, a completely grass-fed pot roast. We ate, you know, the five of us ate over a two-pound pot roast. We had sauerkraut, we had sweet potato, we had cauliflower. I mean, that's what it's about, right? When I think about, you know, how much fat was on that pot roast, we kind of fight over it now because we get how healthy that is for increasing, um, you know, the, the nutrient concentrations in our body and doing the right stuff for our metabolism. So with that in mind, used to, I mean, again, over a decade ago, before I really started to study what you share, Dr. G, we would start our day with a, with a, with a basically a fruit smoothie, right? We had a lot of berries, pineapple, all the stuff that tastes so good in those smoothies. And we've switched. We pulled as much of the pineapple and bananas out, and even apples, and we're putting in more things like, like kale and cucumber and other things like that. So the concept for me long ago was fresh fiber first. Before any meal, I'm going to have some raw apple or some fiber. Now it's, you're going to have some fats and proteins before we have that apple. What's that mean? Well, it means that we don't know a whole lot about the human body. Uh, it means that that we are uh, constantly learning, uh, and and that you know what was true uh, uh, ten years ago is no longer true today. And it's not because uh, anything changes in human physiology; it's because we are just don't know a whole lot, right? So uh, there, there's a family that that wrote. Uh, there was a, a, a family uh, of of doctors. Um, you know, grandfather, father, son, grandson, they were all physiologists and they wrote a series of textbooks called uh, Guyton Physiology. And these, you know, this goes back de decades. And, uh, you know, after 40 or 50 years of, of constantly producing this, this textbook on an annual basis, the the head uh, doctor, you know, in, who is the author of the textbook was asked, you know, about how much we've learned over the years. He goes, I can safely say after 50 years of 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 writing textbooks that we probably at this point know maybe two percent of human physiology, <laughs> which means we don't know a whole lot and, and we're constantly learning. And, and this also was accelerated in, our, you know, during the, the covid crisis. Uh, because during the COVID crisis, uh, you know, we, we, what was true in January was no longer true in February, which was no longer true in March. I mean, that was very much accelerated. So it, it means that, that we're constantly learning. And I could talk for hours about fructose and the kind of sugars found in fruits and why fruits may not be a good food for us. Um, and that maybe would be the topic of, an, of, of another discussion. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of chiropractic, medicine, nursing, or any other professional healthcare service, including the giving of chiropractic or medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional chiropractic or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not regard or delay in obtaining chiropractic or medical advice from any chiropractic or medical condition they may have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.